Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Publishing Director at Word on Fire. Today I'm with Bishop Barron and we will be discussing parenthood, children, and freedom. Is parenthood suffocating or liberating? Do children keep you from self-discovery or do they facilitate your identity? Today we're going to discuss those questions in light of a couple controversial articles, one in Time Magazine, the other in the New York Times, all swirling around these topics. But before we do, Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey Brandon, always good to see you. Let's talk about a couple updates here. One is that you recently joined all of the parishes participating in the Word on Fire Engage program. If you don't know about this program, check it out. You can find it at engage.wordonfire.org. But it's a, it's a service Word on Fire provides to parishes to help them evangelize people that aren't coming to church. Uh, we have all sorts of digital uh, means and tools. We have coaching that our Word on Fire staff provides and they get special Q&A sessions with Bishop Barron, and you just did one of those with all the parish leaders. So give us a little hint, because you know, for, I'm intrigued by the fact that this is kind of the first time you're interacting with parish leaders as they're coming out of COVID. So did you notice anything in that regard? Yeah, I think so. You know, there's been a, a major preoccupation of the church uh, in recent weeks and months. And yeah, they were, I think, full of energy and looking for new things to do and new directions and so I think Engage was probably helping them with that. Uh, they're just good questions, and uh, I enjoyed hearing from a, a, quite a range of people who were involved in parish work in different ways, uh, you know, priests and lay people and all kinds of different levels. So um, I think there's a lot of pent-up energy in the church, which we should take advantage of. You know, shortly after the COVID pandemic began, we released a free ebook. It was titled mm -hmm. Catholicism in the Time of COVID, and we just gave it away for free as a PDF. It was downloaded over 100,000 times, and we just released a new follow-up ebook. This one is titled Catholicism After Coronavirus, a post-COVID guide for Catholics and parishes. You can download it for free at wordonfire.org slash COVID. It features a lot of contributors. I think there's close to 15, 16 different contributors from a wide range of people within the church. So you have nuns and priests and lay people and parents and teachers and catechists all giving their assessment on where parishes and Catholic leaders need to move now after the pandemic. So I encourage all listeners to download it. Again, totally free. So go to wordonfire.org slash COVID and download the free PDF today. All right, Bishop, today we're talking about parenthood and freedom. And I wanna add this caveat at the very beginning so neither one of us are misunderstood or misinterpreted. Throughout this question, or throughout this episode, we're gonna focus on the question of why children are good for parents. But of course, everyone's situation is unique. There are many couples, of course, who yearn to have children and who can't, and many couples who have to delay or forego children for totally legitimate reasons. That's not what this episode is about. This episode is about the disturbing trend of married couples who choose to delay or forego children for reasons of personal desire or comfort, or you'll hear this often, the quest for self-fulfillment. That's specifically what we're talking about on this episode. Now, there's a recent New York Times story we're gonna get to, but to set the stage for that, I wanna go back to a cover story on Time Magazine. Mm -hmm. 2013, Time Magazine ran a cover story titled, The Child-Free Life. And at the time, you wrote an article commenting on this uh, cover piece, and it generated a good deal of 
controversy and commentary as can be imagined. I just want to sum up the cover. The, the cover had a photo of a couple that was lounging languidly on the beach and they were gazing up at the camera with blissful smiles and there was no child anywhere in sight. And clearly what the editors wanted us to accept was that this scenario is not just increasingly common in our country, but that it's morally acceptable and even praiseworthy. And it's a lifestyle choice that that we should celebrate. Um, but as you say in the article, this whole idea of a child-free life is a historical anomaly. Is is that right? Oh, I think so. And yeah, I, it, I'm surprised it's that long ago. In 2013, I wrote that article. It seems like yesterday. So it's already, what, eight years ago. It's before I came out here as a bishop. I must have been, I was rector at Mundelein then. Um, yeah, I would say certainly from a historical cultural standpoint, it's anomalous. I mean, for most of human history, most you know people got married, they had children, and so on. Um, but that it's more of a widespread decision on the basis of you know personal reasons. That's become, I think, uh, prevalent today in a way that, that really is new in the culture, and it's born of something I we you and I've talked about a lot, which is the you know, the culture of individualism, of self-invention, that it's I make up my own values, etc. I think as I remember that article, I was saying this decision up until very modern times was always put in a much wider framework of meaning. It was never just my personal choice for my personal reasons, but it was seen as ingredient in much wider uh, horizons. So I think that part of it, yeah, is, is fairly new. Yeah, let me read you a line from your article from, you know, almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. You said, up until recent times, the decision whether or not to have children would never have been simply up to the individual. Mm -hmm. Rather, the individual choice would have been situated in the context of a whole series of values that properly condition and shape the will, including family, neighborhood, society, culture, the human race, nature, and ultimately, God. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I, I do remember when I wrote those lines, what I had in mind were those initiation rituals of primal peoples where a young man, we'll take that example, um, was taken out of his domestic uh, environment. And usually he was um, scarified in some way. They'd knock a tooth out or he'd be circumcised or his cheek would be cut or something. The idea there was um, life is tough, man, get used to it. Uh, it'll wound you. If you really live your life, it'll wound you, you know. But then the child was brought into these different contexts of meaning. He'd be introduced into the lore of his tribe. But then beyond the tribe, he'd be compelled to survive within nature and the demands of nature, the indifference of nature in many ways. But then finally, the quest was to find a spiritual grounding in that power that transcends even nature. The idea is this individual who's been kind of coddled most of his life. So think of a little, you know, baby and a toddler and, you know, they're the center of attention and they're protected and all that. But at the key moment of adolescence, they've got to be broken out of that little cocoon and they've got to be introduced into a much more dangerous world, but at the same time, a much more alluring and interesting and fascinating uh, world. And that's what maturity was all about. A fear that I have, and it's reflected in those lines I wrote eight years ago, is that the stress on the individual is so great that we don't allow a lot of people properly to grow up. 
Because if, if my perspective is, well, it's my life, it's about me, it's about my needs, about protecting me from danger, well, psychologically, I haven't left the, my childhood home. I might be very successful and, and wealthy and prominent figure, but psychologically and spiritually, I haven't left my childhood home. How do you break out of that and be introduced into these wider horizons? Well, one of the classic ways was to get married and have children. <laughs> There's something about children that force you out of your self-regard. You know? Now, I want to do something too, Brandon, what, what you did a few minutes ago, is just be very careful that we're not dealing with you know, kind of sharp, stark either-ors here, you know? uh, as though now the only, the only path forward is for you know, every Catholic woman to get married at 21 and begin having their 10 children. I, I'm not, the church does not make that argument. The church does not impose that kind of obligation. It leaves an awful lot of that to the prudential judgment of people. So I want to be really clear about that. But having said that, is there today a more prevalent attitude reflected in that cover story in Time magazine that, ah, you know, it's up to me? And if that's, you know, my decision to live my life in a, you know, kind of just protecting myself and achieving my goals, um, there's a problem there spiritually. There's a problem there spiritually. Now, it doesn't mean let's just go lurching to the other extreme, you know, and say, well, we simply go back to, you know, previous forms of life and all that. No, a lot is left to legitimate prudential judgment. But um, let's not stay, spiritually speaking, in this little narrow space of self-regard. And I think children and the obligation they carry have a unique way of breaking us out of that cocoon of self-regard. You know, over the years, you've refined the spiritual path of Word on Fire, and one of the key principles has been your life is not about you. Mm -hmm. And in this commentary you wrote in 2013, you close it with a, with a conclusion along those lines. You say, it is finally with relief and a burst of joy that we realize our lives are not about us. Traditionally, having children was one of the primary means, not the only one, yeah. one of the primary means by which this shift in consciousness took place, that increasingly this liberation is forestalled and that people are finding themselves locked in the cold space of what they sovereignly choose, I find rather sad. Now, I find mm -hmm. it interesting that juxtaposition, you describe having kids and discovering that your life is not about you as joyful, relieving, a burst of joy. You describe it as a liberation. And then you describe the alternative of just making your life about your own goals and ambitions and desires as cramped and cold and rather sad. Why do you have that view? Because the great ideals, the great goods and truths and beauties, the world of objective value is what draws me wonderfully out of myself into this world of exploration. That's why it's so wonderful when you, you introduce a kid to science or to philosophy or the arts. I remember when I was a young kid and first being introduced to those worlds and, you know, this is pre-computers, going into like these old things called libraries and realizing, look at these books, they're all about this subject that I've discovered. Now, broaden that out into the world of, of the arts. Broaden it out to the world of, of relationships, you know, that infinitely challenging realm of, of cultivating a friendship with somebody. 
How wonderful when these worlds of objective value open up and you're drawn up out of yourself. What I find cramped and indeed very sad is the preoccupation with my own protection. And that's one reason why I don't like all the stress today on safety, to be safe. I'm safe, I'm comfortable, don't, don't get into my space. But that leaves you in a very narrow little, I think, prison, finally. Now, again, family's not the only way, but it's a prime way, traditionally, to be drawn out of that self-regard. The, the baby looking up at you um, in love and with need and all of that is maybe more than anything else able to draw you out of self-regard into, into um, a world of value that you would not know in any other way. Um, how important, I've said this before, I'm following Cardinal George when he used to say to these seminarians, you know, a priest is not a bachelor. A priest is a married man. Is that we're married to Christ's church and we have, um, we have spiritual children. And so a priest will talk about that, is when you go into your parish and you realize, I'm responsible for these people spiritually. They look to me, you know, for their, their needs. If I say, well, my priesthood's about just cultivating my, you know, personal desires and make my life as kind of easy as possible, I mean, you'll be bored in about 10 minutes. So th that's why I don't like the, you know, let's put some sunglasses on and lounge on the beach. Yeah, sure, as a vacation. I'm all in favor of it. Go on a nice vacation. But if that becomes the dominant um, sort of archetype of my life, I'm going to miss out on everything that's important. Now, the reason I wanted to return to that 2013 article and that time cover story is because that whole issue has cropped up again in a big way. Mm -hmm. Last month on May 7th, New York Times ran a piece by a young Catholic journalist working there. She's an opinion writer for the New York Times. Her name is Elizabeth Bruenig, and she wrote an article titled, I became a mother at 25, and I'm not sorry I didn't wait, presumably <laughs> yeah. wait longer to have kids. Right. And while the article included commentary on the drop in the birth rate and millennials not having a lot of kids, as well as she's championing the need to have more uh, financial support for new parents and benefits at jobs for parents. Um, overall, it was mostly just a personal reflection on mm -hmm. having a baby in her 20s in light of the millennials commonly stated concerns for delaying childbirth into their 20s and 30s. Now, predictably, the piece was met with a lot of vicious reaction, largely, it seems, from uh, a lot of feminist circles. But Elizabeth raised a lot of interesting points, and I wanted to get your thoughts about a few of them. So first of all, she talked about the reasons why young people are delaying, intentionally delaying having children today. She said, when surveyed, most young people report that they elected to put off having kids because they wanted to make money first, or because of, among the other things, the high cost of child care and the burden of student debt, others cited the price of housing, political instability, and the fear of a changing climate. Millennials who had not yet had children and weren't sure if they would told the New York Times in a recent survey that they didn't want to sacrifice leisure time or that they hadn't found the right partner or that they weren't certain that they would make good parents. Um, if you're sitting in front of a room of a bunch of millennials and, and they shot off all those objections to you, what would you as a spiritual father say in response? Well, in a way, Brandon, it's hard to answer that question because as we say, there's plenty that is legitimately left to the realm of, of prudential judgment. The church never says, for example, 
yep, you better get married when you're 21 and 22. It doesn't say, yep, and you got to have eight or 10 children. It's never said that. Um, it's against artificial means of birth control, for example. It's not against birth control. It's not against the spacing of birth. It's not against, it, it doesn't say, you know, you must be uh, open to as many possible children as you can have. I mean, so that's important to point out. And all the reasons that people give there, let's say for either delaying getting married or maybe spacing their children in a certain way. Let's say you've got a, a young woman who's pursuing a, a PhD and she really wants to get that finished. And she might say, I don't want to get married until I finish. Or um, she's married, and but she still wants to finish the PhD. Is it legitimate to say, I, I want to make sure we space our children in a way that that is possible? Sure, sure, that's perfectly legitimate. Um, and probably every one of the things you mentioned there, taken in, in isolation, you say, yeah, okay, that might be a, a reason. What you'd have to do is sit down with someone really as a spiritual director or in the confession, confessional box, and, and really talk about motivation, talk about ultimate goals, talk about what's really uh, behind this, etc. So it's hard to adjudicate it abstractly. You'd have to do it in a much more particular way. Like, you know, Brandon, I think of my own mother. Um, in her generation, very few women went to college. And so my mother finished high school. And then right away, she went into the workplace. And so when she was 19, I guess, and she worked at the phone company. She worked in a, a, a car dealership. She worked in a, the Cudahy Packing Company. She worked in a whole slew of different places as different things, secretaries and assistants and all this. So before it was really fashionable, uh, my mother was a kind of a working gal, you know, and my parents didn't marry till they were 35. Um, they, I forget how many years they, they dated, but several years. They, they married at 35 and then started having children. I never really asked my parents that much about that, but, you know, my mother had a career and she did all sorts of things. Okay, great, great. And then she married later in life. Uh, my parents were utterly, utterly devout Catholics and followed the church in every detail. But, I, you know, my mother didn't marry at 22. Okay. My mother didn't have, you know, 12 children. Okay. Um, so I, I would never want to judge any of that from an abstract point of view. You'd have to look at it individually. Um, I, I worry more about maybe those attitudes getting so deep in people's psyches and, and minds that they say, yeah, marriage, you know, that's such a burden, or yeah, kids, I mean, I, I'll never have kids, or they're such a problem and they get in the way. No, no, I don't want that attitude to take hold. Um, can you have it all? <laughs> so, you know, you hear that phrase. I would say, no, I mean, life is short and options are limited, and, and the fantasy that I can have every experience and achieve every one of my goals and be, you know, a working person and making all kinds of money and becoming famous and having a big family. I mean, part of it is, look, life is short and it's limited, and so that's a fantasy. I can have it all. So anyway, I'm, I'm rambling here a bit, but um, I, I wouldn't want to, to pass judgment from outside, but I would challenge people to say there's, there's, there's more to life than uh, achieving my kind of personal uh, uh, professional goals. Uh, a family is a wonderful way to break out of one's you know, cocoon of self-regard.
In her article, Elizabeth gives voice to another objection. Here's what she says. But what about having children, or getting married for that matter, before establishing oneself? That is to say, what to say to the young person who might consider those kinds of commitments, marriage and children, if not for the finality of it all, the sense that she might be making somebody else before knowing who she really is. Uh, what do you think about that? Is it is it critical that we fully know ourselves before creating or binding ourselves to another person? No, I think of like when I became a priest. Um, even though you know you go through, in my case, I mean many years of, of preparation, but did I? Boy, I had it all together. <laughs> I, t- I totally knew, you know, who I was, what was I, I was about before making the commitment. I would say not totally. In many ways, I found myself in and through the commitment. Uh, I know lots of people that married, you know, very early in life and had a lot of kids and found themselves precisely in that process. There's a play, I suppose, between the two. I mean, I get it. I get it. You don't want to, uh, if, if you're not psychologically and spiritually mature, you shouldn't get married. I mean, so I understand that. You've got to reach a certain level of self-possession. But I wouldn't so stress that. I I mean, you'll wait till you're you're 80 years old before making a commitment because um, we're never utterly there. Um, And often it happens through your commitments. That's how you find yourself is through the commitments you make that you jump in the water first, and then you kind of find your way. You learn how to swim. If I say, I, until I become a master swimmer, I'm not going to get in the pool, <laughs> that's not going to work. So I don't know. It's, again, it's a balance, you know, between those things. And, and I, I understand someone that wants to come to self-possession maybe before making that decision. So you have to look at it, individual cases. In her article, Elizabeth explains, I think, very beautifully how she – finds herself physically in the eyes of her young newborn daughter. She's looking in her eyes and she says, uh, she peered up at me from the shadow of my shoulder and I could see the umber of my own eyes taking shape in hers. There I am, I thought, there I am. Uh, So she came to that same beautiful epiphany. Uh, One more section I wanted to talk to you about, this will be the last one. Um, In her article, she echoes the liberation you encouraged earlier in this discussion. She said, what I didn't understand, couldn't have at the time, was that deserting yourself for another person really is a relief. My days began to unfold according to her schedule, that weird rhythm of newborns, and the worries that I entertained now were better than the ones that came before, more concrete, more vital, less tethered to the claustrophobic confines of my own skull. For this member of a generation famously beset by anxiety, it was a welcome liberation. What do you make of those remarks? I totally get that. That was well articulated. I totally understand that. Again, with all the cautions we've said now a couple times in mind, you don't want to, you know, just one-sidedly stress this, but what would the Christian tradition teach us? It's precisely in love that you find yourself, right? You want to find yourself, lose it. You know, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. That great spiritual principle. Um, Whatever road you take, you'll find yourself precisely through love, which is willing the good of the other. And so that, let's go back to the beginning of our conversation, that image I still have in my mind of the couple lying on the beach uh, with no kids in sight and just kind of relaxing. And Well, 
you could say it's a picture of a life that's lived without real love. It might have achievement in it, it might have comfort in it, but it doesn't have real love. Love means willing the good of another. And so you've got to find, as the song said, somebody to love. Uh, like in the case of, of a priest, you fall in love with, with Christ and you fall in love with his people. And it's, it's in that act that you find your joy. Um, a married person you know, finds that very particular special someone to love and then the children that come from that union. Yeah, I totally get that. And it breaks you out of this finally boredom and anxiety producing cocooning, you know, when I'm just, my life's about me. And as the Supreme Court put it so awfully in 1992 that, you know, it's up to me to determine the meaning of my life and of the universe. And I can't imagine anything more dull and more suffocating than that. Uh, so love, which is not a sentiment, it's not a sentimental recommendation I'm making. It's a hard-edged, harsh and dreadful thing, as Dostoevsky said, to love, to will the good of the other. Um, you know that, Brandon. I mean, as a husband and parent, uh, you find your life precisely in this self-forgetting on behalf of your family. So that's the key. No matter what path you take, no matter how you walk it, that's the path. It's not safety. It's not achievement of my own personal goals. It's something like love, or you're not going to find authentic joy. Uh, and I th I'll, I'll go to the bank on that one. Uh, that's all of Christianity in some ways. Everything else is a footnote to that. God is, that's what God is. And so we, we find our deepest joy in finding someone fully to love, you know. So that's why there I would, I would strongly rail against this uh, now too prevalent attitude about safety, self-regard, my own goals, a pox on all that. You've been throwing around plagues a lot the last few episodes. <laughs> I noticed we've got a couple of epidemics now with all the plagues you've been throwing. It's a little Shakespeare, yeah. All right, well, it's time now for our question from our listener. If you have a question for Bishop Barron, send it to us. We'd love to hear it. You can do so at askbishopbarron.com. Today we're hearing from Daniel, and he's got a question about how priests derive their authority to celebrate hmm. the sacraments. Here's his question. Hello, Bishop Barron. My name is Daniel, and I live in Riverside, California. My question is, what does a priest go through that validates his authority to officiate baptism and the other sacred sacraments? Does it come from the Bible, apostolic succession, or teachings from their seminary training? Hmm. Thank you, and thank you for your work. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I'll cut to the chase of, of the uh, suggestions you make there. I'd say apostolic succession probably is the best answer. Um, an authority was passed on from Jesus to his apostles. And they, by the laying on of hands, we have that from the Bible itself, pass their authority on to others. And then we recognize this succession of apostolic authority down through the centuries. And we'd say the authority to teach, indeed, the authority to govern, but also the authority to sanctify. So the you know, priest, prophet, and king uh, offices of the priest. And they're passed on from Jesus through his apostles and then down through the apostolic succession. So on the day of my ordination as a priest, 
when Cardinal Bernadine laid his hands on my head and ordained me, and then more recently when I was ordained a bishop by that same great gesture. Yeah, the authority is communicated thereby. Now, seminary training uh, comes in to prepare you fully to receive that gift. You know, could I right now as a bishop put my hands on someone's head and say the requisite words and ordain a person? Yeah, I could. I could. But it wouldn't be recommended, right? Because what you do in the ordination ceremony is the bishop in a, in a formal way, you know, do you judge these men to be worthy? And then it's the rector of the seminary or someone gets up and says, after inquiry among the people of God and those charged with their training, I judge them to be worthy. Then the bishop, therefore, I, we choose these men, our brothers, to be priests. There's the relationship between seminary training and the laying on of hands. So before he lays on the hands to, to transmit this apostolic authority, he checks with the seminary rector. Are these guys ready for this? You know, do you judge them worthy? So in that way, you're right. It comes from the seminary training too. But the ultimate answer is from the authority of the bishop, which has been passed down through the centuries from Christ himself. And that to me is one of the great beauties of the Catholic tradition. Well, thanks for the question, Daniel, and thanks to all of you for listening and watching. One final reminder to download your free copy of our new ebook. It's titled Catholicism After Coronavirus, a post-COVID guide for Catholics and parishes. You can find it at wordonfire.org slash COVID. Again, free PDF. You just click and downloaded it. Uh, lots of great perspectives from priests and nuns and Catholic writers, evangelists, authors, teachers, a, a wide diversity of contributors to this free ebook. So find it at wordonfire.org slash COVID. Well, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.